Julie, have you ever wondered if you should stop eating gluten? Yes, absolutely. I feel like this has come up cyclically in my life uh, whenever there's been maybe some new data or some new research. But I feel like like every three years, I'm like, maybe I should stop doing that. Yeah, well, you're not alone. There's millions <laughs> of people each year who remove gluten from their diets. And I think it, you'd have to live under a rock to not notice all the gluten-free options at, at, at restaurants or, or certainly coming out in, in foods and grocery stores and things like that. So, And it seems like there's multiple reasons for this. Um, certainly, there's people who have symptoms that they're trying to get to the bottom of. You may be feeling like, I get an upset stomach all the time, or why am I tired, or I'm having joint pains. And a quick Google search leads to, you know, maybe I should pull gluten out of my diet. Um, other people say, I want to lose weight. And I've heard you know, my best friend took gluten out and lost a uh, hundred pounds. And so I'm going to do that. Um, and so uh, people think it's a good weight loss method. And then honestly, I think what we hear a lot is people just want to figure out ways that they can live longer. They're terrified that whatever they're doing is killing themselves and they want to do things that are going to keep them on the earth longer. And so they say, I'm going to stop eating gluten because I want to live forever. So uh, some people actually have a serious autoimmune condition known as celiac disease. And I would imagine that many of the people listening to the podcast right now are familiar with that concept, but celiac disease is actually an autoimmune condition for gluten and up to up to date, which is a resource we use as physicians quite a bit, reports a pooled global prevalence of around 1.4% of celiac disease uh, around the globe. So it, it, it's not uncommon. That's a that's a lot of people. Um, and then in addition, if you look at certain regions of the world, um, there actually may be higher numbers because we know that there's genetic influences. So even though it's 1.4% across the world, you may go to certain areas of the, of the country or, or the world and find more people that have it. And then I also thought what was interesting is that celiac.org, which is an organization for celiac disease, estimates upwards of one in 100 people may have celiac disease, but only about 30% are diagnosed. So again, it's, you know, kind of maybe vague symptoms that people aren't 100% sure what to do with. Um, and as popular media and health influencers have taken hold of this gluten-free world, the prevailing question I hear all the time is, should I stop eating gluten? Is it really bad for me? Do you hear that every once in a while? Oh my gosh, all the time. Yes. I feel like it's it's uh, very common on, um, I think my algorithm wants to show it to me a lot on all of my platforms. <laughs> yes. yes. So what you're saying is you actually think about this all the time if the algorithm is already getting ahead of it because it knows yeah, your thoughts. The little monkey that lives in my brain, yes. Yeah. So we're going to today we're going to dive head first into the world of gluten. We have a world's expert in the gastroenterology and gluten research to help us answer all the most common questions people have for their doctor friends. Is there such thing as gluten intolerance? How does it differ from celiac disease? How do I know if I should stop eating gluten? What if I'm healthy but just want to stop eating it? Is that bad? Frankly, is just is bread going to kill me? <laughs> That's what I want to know. So honestly, I'm super excited to hear our guest answer these questions because I get them all the time and I honestly don't feel qualified in the least to answer them. Um, and so as you're driving to work and I don't know, probably enjoying a bagel right now, <laughs> let's find out together the real truth behind gluten. Welcome to your doctor friends, the show that teaches you to sniff out the garbage and answers all the questions that you wish you could call or text your doctor friend. My name's Julie Bruni. And I'm Jeremy Allen. And we are two physicians who work at a nationally ranked practice and take care of some of the world's greatest athletes. We know that you have questions and we want to help. We want to be your doctor friends. All right, Julie, it's time for our listeners to rest and digest. So let's bring on our esteemed guest. It's my pleasure to... <laughs> Couldn't get all the way through that one. That's so good. Thanks. Thanks. 
It's my pleasure to introduce Dr. Alessio Fasano. Dr. Fasano is a world-renowned pediatric gastroenterologist, research scientist, and entrepreneur. He's the chief of pediatric gastroenterology and nutrition at MassGen for Children. He also directs the Center for Celiac Research, specializing in the treatment of patients of all ages with gluten-related disorders, including celiac disease, wheat allergy, and gluten sensitivity. He treats patients with acute and chronic diarrheal diseases and treats infants and children who have difficult-to-treat gastrointestinal problems. In addition, he's been named Visiting Professor of Pediatrics at Harvard Medical School and has authored the groundbreaking study in 2003 that established the rate of celiac disease at 1 in 133 Americans. He's widely sought after by national and international media. Dr. Fasano has been featured in hundreds of interviews, including outlets such as the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, NPR, CNN, Bloomberg News, and frankly, now finally at the pinnacle of media outlets, the Your Doctor Friends podcast. So with that, welcome to the podcast, Dr. Fasano. Thank you, Jeremy and Julie, for having me. We, uh, As you can tell, we, we have the same introductions and uh, the same type of stuff as all the other outlets that you've been on. So clearly the same situation. Oh, yeah. It's the cliche that I hear all over again. <laughs> oh, so, hey, I want to start off um, really, really simple here. And let's start right at the beginning and just define what, what is gluten and why do we even care? So, you know, foodstuff is made by three major components, uh, sugars, fat, and, and proteins. Um, and that applies to any products in the food chain, including grains. There are grains in which the main protein component is gluten, um, so like wheat, barley, and rye. This is a, a, a peculiar protein. Actually, there are many proteins because the gluten is a mixture of a variety of you know, proteins called you know, glidins and glutenins, but they're all offending for people. They have problems with that. And the reason why, because contrary to all other proteins, um, this one cannot be completely digested. So in other words, we don't have the machinery to peel off the single component, the building block of proteins that we call amino acid, that we can do with all the other proteins. And therefore, these undigested fragments, if they make the journey in our body, would be seen as enemy that by the immune system, the people that are predisposed to this problem, then they react and you have inflammation that characterizes these conditions. That was a perfect synopsis there. I think we can just end the episode, right? That's that's <laughs> <enough for> everybody. <laughs> <laughs> so certainly, as you were saying, the most well-known gluten pathology that, that is talked about in, uh, is celiac disease. So ex- please explain to our audience what exactly celiac disease based on what you just what you just explained to us? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, again, uh, uh, until 10, 15 years ago, I would not have been able to answer this question. You know, we, we thought there was a, a food intolerance and then we thought there was a, a food allergy, a food sensitivity. But now we know that celiac disease has all the rings and bells typical on autoimmune disease. Hmm. Bottom line, you have a genetic predisposition that puts you at risk, uh, you have the exposure to an environmental trigger. Um, and then I will tell you why then the CD disease is so unique. In this case, it's gluten. Um, you have a response of the immune system that produce antibodies against yourself that we use for diagnosis um, that are called anti-tissue transglutaminase or anti-TTG antibodies. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you have an autoimmune insult. The, the intestine is destroyed. So as all the features of typical autoimmune disease, why so peculiar? Because it's the only autoimmune disease for which we know a lot about the genetics. For example, there are some genes that have high, high penetrance. 
almost 100%. These genes, they are called HLA genes, uh, DQ2 and DQ8, are present in pretty much the totality of people with celiac disease. We have similar prevalence of genes in other autoimmune disease, but do not reach that 100%. But what makes celiac disease unique is the only autoimmune disease for which we know the trigger. Uh, you, we, we don't know what makes people sick with diabetes, uh, mm. MS, uh, rheumatoid arthritis, but we know that gluten is the culprit. And therefore, it's the only autoimmune disease for which we have a treatment, not a cure. And the treatment is if you eliminate the enemy that the immune system goes after, i.e. gluten, the autoantibodies will go away, the autoimmune insult to the intestine will be healing, and the symptoms will go away. So um, proving, and that's the other very interesting part to see the disease, that is not true as we believe before. The autoimmune disease is a one-way situation where you break tolerance. There is nothing you can do about it. If you can prevent this gene environment interaction, in this case by eliminating gluten, um, eventually even autoimmune diseases can be treated. Hmm. It's so interesting. I never really thought about it that that's the only autoimmune disease yeah. that we kind of like know what causes it, but framed that way, it's it, that's that's remarkable and interesting for sure. If, if somebody were to be having symptoms of celiac disease, what would they be experiencing? Like, what are the most common things? <laughs> The what there is a you know the peculiarity that I told you um, that makes you know celiac disease unique. The major challenge of celiac disease is that you can name any symptoms or sign, and I will make an argument that mm. this can relate to celiac disease. Even if you pick your nose twice, talking about picking the nose, I can make <laughs> the argument that you have celiac disease. So that is the major difference uh, with. You know, for example, with diabetes, you pee a lot, you drink a lot, can be anything that diabetes can be mellitus or insipidus, but it's diabetes. But when you talk about, you know, abdominal pain, bloating, diarrhea, constipation, nausea, vomiting, anemia, fatigue, uh, infertility, osteoporosis, mm -hmm. imagine the differential. It's oh my huge. Goodness, yeah. So it's very difficult really to pinpoint on just the clinical basis in the right direction. That's the reason why, as you mentioned, Jeremy, during your introduction, the vast majority of people with celiac disease are not diagnosed yet, mm -hmm. either because they have symptoms that they don't point in the right direction or because they are still asymptomatic or they have very little symptoms. So who does not have bloating once in a while? You know, uh, who does not have, you know, in a, you know regular bowel movements once in a while? Sure. And if this doesn't really affect your lifestyle to force you to go to the doctor, this goes unrecognized for a long, long time. Yeah. Dr. Versano, you mentioned that some of those HLA genes have really, really high penetrance and that you see them very strongly in people that have celiac disease. Does this account for why certain areas of the world or certain populations are at higher risk? Yeah, with the caveat that this is not the only genes that are involved. Yeah. There are many, many, many other genes. Uh, I mean, they account for 60% roughly of the genetic weight. Okay. But clearly... If indeed it's necessary to have these genes, areas like Japan, in which these genes are rare, uh, are where you know there is less you know impact of this disease. Other areas in which there is high circulation of these genes, let's say in Scandinavia, in Sardinia, they see numbers much much higher. The highest of all, North Africa, in the Sahrawi population, you go all the way up to five six percent. And the reason why, because they have a high penetrance in, in the general population in general of these genes. Because, of course, they are not peculiar of seeded disease. There are people that have this gene that will never develop it because, of course, there are other genes that are necessary. 
Um, so here, for example, in the United States, the 30, 35% of the general population have DHLA, DQ2, DQ8. There are other areas in which this number goes up, up to 60% and others like in Japan, in which is 10, 15%. So if I have the gene, am I more or less guaranteed to have the disease? Or are there people with the gene that don't have it? It's a necessary, but not sufficient. Okay. As a matter of fact, we use that in clinic not to confirm see the disease, because if you're positive, I cannot tell you if you are in the 100% of the CEDA group or the 30, 35% of the general population. But right. if I have any doubts on the diagnosis and I do the genetics and you're negative, I have a great level of confidence that you cannot have CD disease. You may have other reaction to gluten, but not CD disease because without those, really, you cannot develop disease. And now we know why. There is a mechanistic reason why you got to have those. Sure. Yeah, I'm thinking about people who are diagnosed with celiac disease and then go to have children. And I'd wonder, do you, do you test those children just automatically then at that point? Yeah, Jeremy, this is a good question because that's a question that is asked all the time. When you have somebody in the family diagnosed with celiac disease, we recommend the entire household to be tested because the risk is higher than the general population. It's 10, 15 percent more. And, uh, you know, let's say that you have, you know, uh, a father or a mother is diagnosed. Now the two kids, the three kids are tested. They test negative by the serology test. And they, you say, okay, now what? Are they out of the woods? If not, how often I have to screen them? Mm-hmm. An easy way to eventually manage that is to not only do the serological test, looking the antibodies against this TTG, but also the genetic. If the genetic is positive, then you need to keep an eye on these kids and have a low threshold of testing. Every single sign that they, every single time that they develop sign of symptoms can be related. You do the tests. If, on the other hand, that they are genetically not compatible, you can stay almost reassured that unless very squishy in the circumstances, they they will yeah. not develop it. It's really interesting because I would imagine as a parent, if I had it and I had a child, I think my tendency would just be to keep my kid away from it. But it definitely sounds like there's ways to introduced gluten you know, to my child or not be too worried at school or anything like that uh, based on there, management. There is always, as you guys know, of course, a balance between pros and cons. When you do any intervention in medicine, you have to have a return on investment. If you have a diagnosis of disease, the aggravation of an investment going gluten-free, that is not a walk in the park, trust mm-hmm. me, particularly in kids, it's overweight by the return on investment to treat an autoimmune disease. But if you don't have that, you invest in something that is socially very difficult to implement. You know, imagine the kids, they go to school, or they go to the cafeteria, the sleepover, the birthdays. That's very difficult to implement. That yeah. They're all doable and necessary if the kid is being diagnosed with celiac disease, but not if the parents is diagnosed and now say, okay, you know, I want to avoid these kids to have the same problem that I have, so I put on a gluten-free diet. While the prevalence in the general population is 1%, in family members, first degree family members, it goes up to 10, 15%, meaning that 85, 90%, these kids is embracing a diet without belonging there. Yeah. Such a good point. That's great. So, Dr. Fasano, um, any other symptoms that you see that, are mu- that might be more specific for celiac? So when, um, when I was in training, the paradigm was celiac disease is a pediatric condition. Hmm. It's a malabsorption syndrome. The kids are typically characterized by this big belly, yeah. diarrhea, weight loss, failure to drive, and so on and so forth. It, it, they look like 
quasher core, the malnourished mm-hmm. kids, the third world country, not because they didn't eat, but whatever they ate, they could not make use of it. Mm-hmm. We don't see this anymore. This is extremely rare. The most frequent way that disease presents itself, and this is counterintuitive, and that partially explains the delay of diagnosis, is fatigue and anemia. That's the most frequent way, both in pediatrics and adults, patients. They may still have some GI symptoms, but are not strong enough to point you in the right direction. Again, you may have some irregular bowel movements, but you know, if you ask any family within a year, do you have a kid that at least has an experience one episode of diarrhea? Right. 90% will say yes. <laughs> so, uh, you know, that means that we have to screen the entire population for celiac disease. But when you go to anemia, particularly if not corrected by iron supplements, mm-hmm. um, and, and with that fatigue, because if you're anemic, you know, of course you're tired because you don't, you don't have, you know, oxygen carried out by, you know, the hemoglobin that is not there in the proper quantities. And, you know, again, the reason why it's so frequent compared to, you know, the classical symptoms, because we absorb iron only in a few inches soon after the intestine, and we don't have any backup. If that is damaged, and that's typically where the damage of celiac disease enteropathy materializes, mm-hmm. you know, you develop anemia. To develop diarrhea, you have to have 50% of your intestine damage because otherwise, if you have, you know, only a small part of the intestine damage, the rest can subsidize, so you can continue to efficiently absorb and digest food stuff. But with, with, with the iron absorption, you don't have a backup. So that's... That's one of the most frequent reasons why um, we see patients in clinic. In the past, they came straight from the hematologist that say, listen, this, this person has anemia. I'm trying to figure out, you know, uh, where it's coming from. It's not responsive to iron supplements. Um, if there are women that have been sent to the OBGYN because there must be abundant menses and they rule that out. Um, and they, I've seen people that, that the hemopoietic bone marrow, you know, exam yeah. to figure out where the anemia was coming from before they sent to the gastroenterologist. Now, because of the disease, they say, well, probably it has some bleeding in the GI tract that is obscure and do a colonoscopy to see if there is some bleeding there. Now, imagine, that, you know, what is the time and cost of all this? You know, in the past, not anymore, be, between the onset of the symptoms, somebody would test you for celiac disease was measured in the early 12, 13 years. Hmm. Oh, my goodness. Now we're <laughs> talking about months, but still it's unacceptable. And imagine that how much you spend of all the tests, mm-hmm. of all the procedures, of all the intervention that you go through in the face of $45 of a screening of blood tests. So, yeah. yeah. Uh, you need to have a low threshold, but you need to have this in your radar screen. Otherwise, you don't think about it. Yeah, and maybe to translate a little bit for our listener, because I think that's a really, really excellent point. If people are advocating for themselves, that that uh, celiac disease this day these days is is diagnosed by a simple blood test. And so, for people who maybe have anemia, as you mentioned, like a low blood clout, or are fatigued and chronically and haven't found a source, like to make sure that you're either having that test drawn or to, you know, talk to your primary care physician. And I would assume that, you know, when you talk to your pediatrician colleagues or your primary care colleagues and you're making recommendations to always think if you have anemia or somebody is chronically fatigued to just get that simple blood test. Yeah. Yeah. A second area that you will be surprised um, that we see quite frequently 
is something that has to do with the brain. Neuroinflammation is a typical way in which seed disease may present itself. Even if the battlefield and therefore the inflammation starts in testing these immune cells, they are activated against gluten, can leave the battlefields and go anywhere in your body. Hmm. And that's the reason why you can develop a skin manifestation like dermatitis periform, the joint pain. You can have, you know, your liver or your pancreas, they're affected. But, you know, some of this, in many cases, this inflammation spills into the brain. And these people, they develop chronic headache, mood swings, short memory loss, anxiety, depression, sometimes all the way to schizophrenic kind of behavior. Oh, wow. And again, uh, you know, um, if it is not unusual now, because as Jeremy was mentioning, the landscape of the relationship between patients and, and doctors or healthcare professionals in general has changed dramatically. People, they more and more take ownership of their health. And I say, I read that chronic that can be associated with celiac disease. And I'm coming to your clinic. Can you screen me for that? Because I've been everywhere. This headache is not going. Hmm. Or, you know, I have, you know, a lot of anecdotes that I can, you know, tell you. Um, uh, these are extreme cases, but this is instrumental to make the point that it sometimes is so difficult to make the diagnosis, but so impactful, um, you know, in the life of these patients. If I'm allowed one, one, one case that was extreme, this young lady in the early 20s, a marathon runner, um, in a matter of few months, start to have difficulties to walk. Um, and then eventually uh, could not even do a few steps. So I had to use the cane. Of course, you know, immediately the PCP thought about multiple sclerosis and yeah. they did all the tests and luckily she was negative. Um, and, you know, um, eventually um, she did a bunch of other tests. And, you know, to make a long story short, um, she read that, you know, she... This stuff could be related to inflammation of the nerves due to gluten. And um, eventually came to my clinic. She came on a wheelchair and she said, listen, I've been to many, many specialists. I was very active. I was a marathon runner. And in only a year, less than a year, now I'm on this wheelchair. I don't have a neurological problem. I don't have, you know, it's a psychiatric problem because I've been told that I'm depressed or I'm bulimic or whatever, uh, that it's all in my head. It's all stress-related because I was too competitive. Well, long story short, if you do not find the solution, I will kill myself. And I said, you know, it's not fair that you put this stress on my shoulders here. But long story short, again, this is an extreme case. She ended up to have a peripheral neuropathy that was induced by gluten in the concept of celiac disease. So these cells that I was telling you, they went to the peripheral nerves, touched the modern nerves, and she could not walk anymore. Yikes. So we made the diagnosis. She went on a gluten-free diet. And as you can imagine, you know, she started to walk again and then run. And she was running marathon after two years that she started gluten-free diet. That's amazing. So if, if she did not come to the clinic... Mm -hmm she will probably still be in a wheelchair because she had to take ownership of, of the problem because she didn't know what else to go. Yeah. It's, you've got my wheels spinning now with all these different cases. So, you know, we screen for a lot of diseases when kids are born, right? We screen for a lot of genetic 
and, and we don't screen for celiac disease and the and it, you've already made the point i think that the blood test isn't positive unless it's expressed itself so it could be negative but eventually be positive later on in life so to test it at one point probably isn't always perfect but is there talk about trying to do something like this for celiac disease to find it sooner so yeah i mean you know uh, of course the the idea is if you have a genetic predisposition because somebody in the family um has celiac disease you definitely allow the threshold of 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 kicking in a testing and and the frequency with which you do that provided you're genetic compatible um the same um again you know, when, when I start this journey, you know, my colleagues didn't even know how to spell celiac disease. Now, thank God, the awareness, actually, the pendulum went all the way the other hand right, up. Right, right. Yeah. But, you know, at least they know, and therefore, the vast majority, they know that screening is an option to be, you know, to consider. Uh, nevertheless, again, uh, we are still uh, searching for the other 70% of people with celiac disease that we don't have diagnosed yet. Yeah. Uh, now that we have strong, reliable, extremely sensitive and specific tests, um, it's something that we need to make use of. Uh, we can, as you said, Jeremy, screen every, the entire population. We start that way, but now we realize that, you know, you can test negative today and positive in a few months. Yeah. Um, and at the beginning, at least, screening everybody for the HLA, the general population, uh, was too expensive. Now the cost is coming down. So maybe that in the near future, you know, starting with the people at risk and then going eventually to the general population, probably the best move is to screen everybody for HLA, DQ2, DQA. So if you are in the 70% of the population negative, 65, 70%, you know that this condition should not be in your radar screen. So if you develop sinus symptoms can be compatible, you should not really spend too much time in that direction. But if you are positive, uh, meaning that you know that you're genetic compatible, now you develop again anemia or, you know, headache or uh, joint pain or whatever, you know, a, a quick test, it, it's a must because yeah. it's cost effective. Dr. Fasano, I want to be really clear about how we diagnose this. Can you be specific about, is that $45 blood test like a, more of a screening test? That's right. This is a three-step process. Yeah. One, you need to have sinus symptom compatible with celiac disease. Sure. Unless you deal with, you know, people at risk that you can screen also if they don't have symptoms. But let's say that you have a typical patients that have sinus symptoms compatible. So that's the first thing. Mm-hmm. If that person has sinus symptoms compatible with celiac disease and other causes of these symptoms be ruled out, you really need to screen for celiac disease. If the yeah. test is positive, the confirmation of the diagnosis to look at the autoimmune insult, I to do an endoscopy, so that you can see the damage of this machinery that digests, you know, absorb food stuff. They're called villi. This finger-like protrusion that we have in the gut, that they have all the machinery to digest and, 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 and you know, absorb food stuff. And if they're gone, that is the definite diagnosis. Got it. So yep. to wrap it up, if I came to you and I'm a 38-year-old woman and I've been having anemia that hasn't been able, you know, to be treated with iron and other testing, and I'm having fatigue and maybe some chronic diarrhea, um, and you screen me and my screening test is positive, then the next step would be you would do an endoscopy, so a a little camera into my esophagus, looking into my small intestine and stomach, and then taking some biopsies? Correct. Got Mm -hmm. it. Cool. Yeah, yeah, Julie, that was awesome. That was great. I want to ask one more question regarding uh, treatment, because I think even for people who don't have 
or for people who don't have celiac disease, I think this can be a little bit confusing, but you know, the, the treatment is obviously to remove gluten from your diet. I think sometimes people kind of think about this as being similar to people who have like a lactose intolerance and they can just take lactate or if they have a little bit of, you know, like lactose, it's not going to cause and you'll get bloated, but it'll be fine. And I think that's not the case here. So maybe just talk about somebody who has celiac disease in do they have to stay away from gluten a hundred percent? Can they have a little bit of gluten? Like what, what's the, what's the general recommendations? Many people, you know, folks in my office, they ask me this when they're diagnosed and my answer is, can you be 85% pregnant? <laughs> so it's a all or none. Yeah. Even if you do 99% of a gluten-free diet, that 1% that you don't do jeopardize everything because this is an autoimmune disease. The immune system just needs to be reminded there's an enemy there. And if it is, it doesn't matter if it's a crumb of bread or the entire loft, the immune system will react the same way. We'll go all in. Um, you know, again, another episode, an Italian lady was diagnosed and, you know, classical stuff. And she went on a gluten-free diet and, you know, um, I saw her after six months that typically we will allow people to learn about the diet to make the mistakes and so on and so forth. So we believe that by six months, is okay. She came back and she said, doc, you know, I don't know. I've done everything that you asked me to, but. I still have the diarrhea, I still have the stomachache, and I still feel miserable. Hmm. Um, and, and I, you know, I said, are you doing the diet okay? I made for sure, you know, that's it with my dietitian. And she was doing everything by book. And I say, you know, let's call Ma Maria. Maria, but, you know, are you sure? Because, again, there's something that's in computer here. And she said, doc, from Monday to Saturday, I'm strictly gluten-free. <laughs> Oh, no. He's doing them Catholic rules. Okay. <laughs> so, so just to say, it's useless that you are oh. religious gluten free for six days a week, and the seventh day you go in all in with whatever, because that 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 will that will jeopardize all the investment that you've done for the rest of the week. Oh, Maria, it, it, I I, I, great... I see myself in Maria quite a bit. <laughs> so I got to cheat. So, so bottom line, this is a long way to answer your question, Jeremy. That's until we find something else. There's a lot in the pipeline in terms of, you know, alternative complementary mm -hmm. treatment and gluten-free diet. That's a strict 100% gluten-free um, diet that you have embraced for your life. Gluten-free is for celiac with insulin is for diabetics. Yeah. You don't have a choice. You, you have to take insulin. Otherwise, you pay dear consequences. The same yeah. for people who see it. Yeah. It's not, it's not, yeah, it seems like it's a little bit akin to like if you had a peanut allergy, you can't just have a little, a, like a tiny bit of a payday bar. No, no, no none for no. you. Yeah. It's, no. it, I think it's a really good thing for our, you know, if you're listening to this, frankly, it's good for me, but like I think there is sometimes a little stigma around celiac disease of like, like, you know, those those people have to be very, very careful when they walk into restaurants, they have to ask, like, is there gluten in the back in the kitchen and, the, and whatever. But it, certainly there are people who are feeling like, why are you so uptight about this? Like it says gluten free on the menu. And again, it's you a know, big these, deal. These people are considered sometimes paranoid, uh, you know, exaggerating their stuff and so on and so forth. But if we, the three of us, we go out for dinner, for example, we would talk about the weather, your 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 vacations. Mm -hmm. Why J Julie hates Jeremy when he does <laughs> X Y Z? How did you know that? 
they always have to have this mental focus yeah. on what is on the table. Yeah. The, one of the most enjoyable activity humankind becomes a stressful operation. Yeah. Not home, because of course they know to be safe home because they do yeah. exactly the way Control. they're supposed to. But when you go out uh, in a restaurant, uh, the house of a friend, and so on and so forth, say, "Oh yeah, absolutely, I'm using you know gluten free uh, whatever," and then you realize that I don't know they use the same canister of the regular pasta yep. or they use the same toaster of the regular bread and so on and so forth, and they may not be tuned in how finicky and details oriented you have to be to avoid even that small you know cross contamination then then you can appreciate why people with see disease has to be so tied up so to speak to make sure that they embrace the right diet yeah and how isolating and sad can that be you know if there's stigma attached to that and if i just we just well, had a, a really nice talk with one of my our one of our friends, Laura Danger, about how we can reconnect with the people that we love, especially in this, you know, post-COVID world. And it's like, gosh, we can't even have a damn meal together because you know, it, it's it's so anxiety inducing to, to our friend that has this malady that, yeah, you can't have gluten because it kills you. <laughs> you know? So it's it's interesting that you use the term isolating. One of the first time that I was dealing with, you know, this group of kids and, and I told them, can you design and put, you know, in a cartoon or something, you know, your feeling about seated disease. One kid did this very long, long table, like the Putin style table, very, very long, uh-huh. in which all the family was on one side and he was oh sitting on the other side by himself. Baby. Just out there, miles from the rest of the group. Yeah, that is the quintessential yeah. concept of the way that an eleven-year-old kid will feel mm-hmm. when sitting in a table, even if physically it's not the reality. But that's the way that he depicted in his mind. Uh, very isolating. And if you ask the vast majority of people with serious disease, what I have the Aladdin lamp here. Mm-hmm. And you have only one wish, not three. I want to go back to have a regular life. I really want to be like everybody else. That's their desire. Not even to eat regular food, but to be, you know, mentally, physically, emotionally like everybody else. Yeah. You know, again, the blessing of the disease that you don't have you know, to take medication and make your hair to fall off or to have yeah. severe side effects. But on the other hand, you have to implement your quote-unquote medication three, four times a day when you eat. Mm-hmm. And and again, it's it's tiring. And that's the reason why everybody is looking for something that comes from the pipeline of research that will be complementary to help you out to ease up a little bit that tightness, so to speak. I'd love to transition. It's probably difficult to transition from that to anything, to be honest. But I want to transition to a comment you made earlier about the pendulum swinging, because I think what seems to have grown in awareness is the concept of gluten insensitivity, you know, that not necessarily celiac disease, but somebody who is not tolerating gluten. And I know you published work around a decade or so ago that advocated for this condition as a separate entity, like a true entity that actually exists, because there was a lot of conversation of, can people actually be insensitive to gluten, but not have celiac disease? So talk to us a little bit about, you know, what gluten insensitivity is and, and, and your perspective on that? Well, to give, to Caesar what is the Caesar, the responsible to rediscover, actually, what was already in the literature, but we completely forgot. 
I that besides celiac disease, there were other way of reacting to gluten is my wife. She <laughs> is a, 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 an old gastroenterologist and, and she, at that time, you know, we were not married yet. So we were working in the same lab and so on and so forth. And she told me, listen, there are these people that they react to gluten and they don't have celiac disease. And I said, what the heck are you talking about? The paradigm at that time was you go on a gluten-free diet if you're diagnosed with celiac disease. If you rule out celiac disease, you have no business to go on this diet. And she said, you know, I keep seeing patients coming in clinic that they swear that the only thing that makes a difference is a gluten-free diet. Hmm. Well, anyhow, that opened this entire new world of the fact that there's a spectrum of gluten-related disorders. Um, so you have the autoimmune response that is celiac disease. You have the allergic response with allergy. And then you have this other form of reaction that is still an immune reaction. It's not autoimmune, not allergic. That's gluten sensitivity. Totally indistinguishable, these three forms on the clinical ground. Again, they, they are non-specific. But the... the the, and all of them will require a gluten-free diet, of course. But the way that you embrace that is very, very different. We discuss at length, and we don't need to go back, the stringency of the gluten-free diet for people with celiac disease. For these other two conditions, like you mentioned for peanuts, you need to be as strict as your body will require. So if you have a wheat allergy or gluten sensitivity, some people like celiac have to be very strict. Others may tolerate cross-contamination and are totally fine. Got it. Um, but... I will be remissive if I will not mention, because, you, you know, this was mentioned already, that if you combine the people with celiac disease, um, you know, uh, with allergy and, and on celiac gluten sensitivity, even if all of them will be diagnosed, that will make 20% of the current consumers are gluten-free diet. So the vast majority of people, they are gluten-free. They do this for reasons they are not medical you know, uh, necessity. Of course, everybody's free to eat whatever they want, but you know that that's more a lifestyle, but not a medical necessity. It's a great distinction. Thanks, Dr. Fasano. And that doesn't mean that that eliminating gluten from your diet is necessarily going to harm you in any way. I mean, there's no there's no medical necessity for gluten to be in your diet. Is that is that correct? So, so evolutionary speaking and, and, and biological speaking. Gluten is a useless protein. We can live without that. Yeah. So in other words, we can do totally fine mm -hmm. if we eliminate the gluten from our diet. The problem, though, is that, you know, it's very expensive. So it hurts your pocket mm -hmm. um, if, you, if you can afford it. Um, it may be, depending on how strict you go, as we said, it can be socially isolating would create challenges when you have to travel and so on and so forth. Um, and um, when you eliminate gluten and grains in general, you make a big disservice to the ecosystem and your gut, what we call the microbiome, because you, we already in the Western hemisphere, we have a diet that is poor of fibers. You go gluten-free, the amount of fibers will decrease tremendously. So it's not the loss of gluten that's the problem is what comes with the grains that is the problem, namely the fibers. Got it. That's a great distinction. Thank you. One out of three Americans, so almost 100 million people, will consume a gluten-free diet product by the end of this year. So this market is becoming huge. And it's all good news for the people that they have the medical necessity to be on a gluten-free diet because the products are more available, more palatable, 
less expensive because the demand is high. Um, but if you want to go gluten-free or you want to implement any kind of diet, I think that is a good idea to do this under the advice of a healthcare professional that can guide you. Because, again, it's your freedom to eat vegan or paleo or gluten-free or whatever else you want. But you need to know the nutritional consequences when you eliminate some stuff from your diet. And you need to be, you know, if the goal, as we were mentioning, is to have a, to live a long and healthy life, you need to subsidize what you eliminate with this diet with something else that could provide, in this case, you know, fibers, what, what you're missing by going gluten-free. That's an awesome summary. And it reminds me, Julie, of the TikTok uh, diet episode that we did. We did an episode where we broke down three TikTok diets. And and again, there a lot of diets tend to be elimination based. And so it's not necessarily the elimination that causes the problem. It's, it's, it's what you eliminate with it, uh, as you yeah. mentioned. And if you it's don't supplement with those things. So I, I thought that that was an awesome summary of that. Yeah, again, on that team, because, you know, I'm, I'm not only Professor Piyar, but also nutrition. And, and my expertise, believe it or not, yeah, clinically, you know, I do a lot of stuff with gluten-related disorder, but I'm the poop doctor. I really believe and smell and, 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 and work on microbiome forever from the beginning of the, the time that it was not even called as such. When you make an elimination diet, you put in disadvantage some of the component of your ecosystem and you yeah. put that off balance. And that's in general not a good thing because, you know, we have been born and evolved to have a diversified microbiome. And if you eliminate some stuff from your diet, you definitely put to disadvantage some of these components. You know, if you allow me the parallel, the microbiome is a sort of farm with different animals. And if we meant to have a farm with chicken and pigs and, and, and sheep and, 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 and cows and, and horses, they eat different stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you open your mouth, you can, uh, your, your teeth, uh, we're omnivores. Yeah. The, the reason why we have a problem in the Western Hemisphere is not because, you know, we eat only too much. It's the proportion of the stuff that is very different. Gabriel Anders were used to eat a lot of fruits, a lot of vegetables, a lot of tubers and nuts and olive oil. And why? Because they were easy to collect. Mm-hmm. Meat, oh yeah, once in a night moon, because mm-hmm. you have to catch these animals. And these were lean meat. Now, again, the proportion are completely revolutionized back forward. So going back to the gluten-free diet. I think it's a good thing because the first consequence is going gluten-free. Junk food is out of your options. You can't eat junk because it's all based on gluten-containing products. Yeah. Is gluten insensitivity something that also has a genetic component to it? Or is that something that people develop? Is it something they, they you can cause to yourself? Like, <laughs> Yeah, I mean... Uh, you know, for what we understand, because recurring the same families, there is also a genetic component, but we have m- much more li- limited information about gluten sensitivity compared to celiac disease because it's a new, new kids on the block. So we know very little, honestly. Okay. Um, yeah. and, and again, but this applies to all diseases of humankind. You are not born with a disease. You are born with a genetic predisposition of a disease, breast cancer, celiac disease, diabetes, Alzheimer's, and so on and so forth. If the genetic predisposition translates in clinical outcome, contrary to what we believed before, depends on your lifestyle, the way that you play your genetic cards. And one of the most impactful ways to play your genetic cards, for better or for worse, is nutrition. Um, 
So uh, you you published a book in um, 2014, Gluten Freedom. So you know it's obviously been you know nine ish years since you published that book. What do you, what are some of the biggest changes since you know you published that book of our understanding? Well, you know the, the the impetus to write this book with the help of Susan Flaherty was because there was so much confusion at that time about you know celiac disease and other gluten related disorders. Uh, you know the, the, all this issue gluten. Uh, it's, it's a poison for you. Some people went to the stream to publish book who said, you know, that the, ra- the human race will be extinct if you don't go gluten-free. Uh, <laughs> so we said, you know, we got to put a little bit of order here so that people have factual information and then they can make the decision what to do with their diet. Uh, the, the, the key fundamental and foundational principle is still valid, even if the book now is almost 10 years old. So they are still valid. What has been changing ever since, I would say that, you know, um, awareness has been changing um, among healthcare professionals, particularly because at the beginning there was a lot of skepticism to move out of the celiac disease domain, so to speak. And even within the celiac disease domain, the skepticism was, yeah, but it's not, you know, here in the United States. We don't see this in North America. Based on what was at that time the vision, um, that will start to change. I have to say that celiac disease is a pediatric condition with kids with malabsorption. And, and if you look for that, of course, there is no such a thing in the United States. Now, that's also changed. Um, and, and I believe, you know, um, another major change is that in 2014, there were three or four clinical trials to develop a product alternative to the gluten-free diet. And now there are almost 200, you know, Oh, wow. products in, 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 in the pipeline at different stages of development, meaning that there is really a push. As the number of people diagnosed with celiac disease increases, there's really a push to increase the, um, uh, the, the, um, the uh, you know, development of something that will be complemented to the gluten-free diet. And, and finally, of course, the landscape of healthcare completely changed. As I mentioned before, in 2014, the patients were more passive. They will eventually follow the direction of a of, of a doctor that will say, you know, this is all in your mind. You are hypochondriac, and that's the reason why you have the symptoms. And these people will deal with the symptom for 10, 15 years. Yeah. This is not happening anymore. People took ownership of the health. They read for better or for worse. What is in the internet, and very often, very often. I have people coming clinic now, not because referred by the PCP, but because they said I've take, I'm taking over, mm-hmm. and I believe that you need to check me for something related to gluten because I believe that there's something wrong with me. And I tried for a few weeks, and I feel better, and I want to know if I'm barking the right tree or not. So that that those are you know some of the changes I've seen. That's great. I love it. We definitely uh, uh, preach advocating for yourselves on this podcast and, and people empowering themselves to, to get information and then certainly trying to find good sources for it, which is what we're trying to do here. So, And as you mentioned uh, earlier with your interest in microbiome, you have a newer book out called Gut Feelings, um, which, again, we are super excited to potentially maybe have you back because that's a very hot topic. And mm-hmm. uh, I guess for listeners out there, there's those two books if you want to uh, you know study up before we, uh, we get mm-hmm. the next episode out. Um, we'll link them in the show notes, too. Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, again, if 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 you allow me, you know, taking ownership of your health for people with gluten related disorder is something that has a bottleneck of the gluten free diet. 
But if you talk about taking ownership of your health, no matter what, from you know autoimmune diseases to allergic diseases to infectious diseases to cancer and even aging, mm-hmm. you better look at your microbiome because for what we see now in any domain of humankind, the microbiome plays a tremendous role indeed to how we play our genetic cards, you know? Yeah. And um, so, it, you know, the gluten-free diet and, and the implementation is a, it's something that we concern a niche of individual, but take care of the microbiome. It's something that we all need to. Well, hopefully you enjoyed yourself on this podcast because you just guaranteed a re-invitation back to it. Uh, and and for anybody listening, the call to action today was going to be to share this with a friend so that they could yeah. listen to it. But now the call to action is to reach out to Dr. Fasano personally to tell him how much you enjoyed this episode mm-hmm. and that he should come back on to talk about the microbiome because he just did an amazing <laughs> advertisement for us. Julie, you want to summarize a little bit, and then I don't know. If I would love to thing. summarize, and then I did come up with a yes, with an yes. outro. <laughs> it's my job, Doctor Fasano, to come up with like the dumb little tagline at the end of the episode, uh-huh. and I think I have a good one. So, you know, now I'm now I'm all a Twitter about it. But yeah, to to summarize, Doctor Fasano, I think you gave us a really great rundown of one. You know, what's the difference to some degree between celiac disease and gluten? sensitivity. And it does exist on a spectrum, but particularly celiac disease involves, you know, having signs and symptoms consistent with that disease, which could be, you know, gastrointestinal changes like bloating, diarrhea, um, you know, signs of sort of not absorbing food correctly or nutrients correctly, which then can typically lead to things like chronic anemia, fatigue, but then even could be things as, as ubiquitous as headaches and mood disorders. So, you know, if you're struggling with um, some of these signs and symptoms, uh, I think it's it's helpful to consider, you know, speaking to a healthcare provider about potentially being screened, which would be a pretty easy blood test. And with that testing, if that becomes positive or is indicative, then likely the next step would be something like an endoscopy, which is a very simple um, procedure where you take some look at a camera down your throat and take some uh, a look around, and look at some biopsies. Um, this is a very common, uh, I'd say very, it's a pretty common, 1% of the population is a pretty common, um, and that there's many people, only about 30% of people that have celiac disease even know that they have it. So there's a great opportunity for us to improve our diagnostics here and our education, which is what we're trying to do today. Um, yeah, I, I think that that's the main points. Did I miss anything, Jared? No, be kind to your celiac friends. They are doing their best. Yeah, let's give them a break, man. That's some hard stuff. One of our one of our favorite partners at work, Josh, has celiac disease, and this is this episode is dedicated to him. Hmm. Um, and then if if you if you're ready for my sign off, Jeremy, I'm ready. ready for it. All right, so it's not all in your head, but maybe it's in your gut. Listen all to right. your doctor friends. <laughs> Yay! So the poop doctor approves. Yes. The amazing music is credited to Skillcell with Pixabay licensure. The podcast is meant for educational and entertainment purposes only. The contents of this podcast should not be taken as medical advice to treat any medical condition in either yourself or others. Please consult a medical professional for any medical issues that you may be having. The contents of this podcast are the opinions of the hosts only and do not reflect the opinions of their employers or affiliations. 
This entire disclaimer also applies to any guests or contributors to the podcast. Under no circumstances shall Dr. Julie Bruni or Dr. Jeremy Allen or any guest to the podcast be responsible for damages arising from use of the podcast. 